All right. Let's uh, let's say a prayer, and then we'll get we'll get rolling here. Lord Jesus Christ, there is none holy like you. There is none besides you. There is no rock like you, our God. Exalt the poor. Give strength to the lowly. Help those in need. And restore to health all those who are ill. Grant us mercy in all things. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay. This is not looking hopeful here for my screen. This is uh, good. So uh, we'll, I'm just going to leave it there, and if something changes, let me know. Like if it just all of a sudden starts working. Uh, it has happened before. So uh, if you read the Life Together announcement, um, it lies. We're done. We're done with Mark. We promised you we were done with Mark. We're done with Mark. Um, we're going to start first and second Samuel. First and second Samuel. Do you have any questions before, before I start talking and can't stop? Any questions? Any questions about what we're doing here? You good? Any questions left over from Mark? No. Thanks for coming today. It's really cold outside. Um, good. Okay. So. We're going to do First and Second Samuel, and there's a couple ways at this. I was going to show you, this is why I'm a little disappointed, I was going to show you the video from the Bible Project. We'll do it another time, an animated thing to help tie things together for you, to show you the big picture. And the big picture is actually um, a really important thing. So unlike the Gospel of Mark, and unlike a lot of other texts, First Samuel moves in big, sweeping narratives. Okay? So it's not like little, short, little episodes, but it's, it's big story arcs. And in fact... First, from the beginning of 1 Samuel to the end of 2 Samuel is actually all one book. We have kind of this artificial, here's how it works. You, they wrote 1 and 2 Samuel on one scroll in Hebrew, and then 1 and 2 Kings on another scroll in Hebrew. So these were first volume, second volume. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. And then when they translated it to Greek, it takes up more space. And so 1 and 2 Samuel had to be split in two parts. So that's how we get 1 and 2 Samuel. But you should really just think of it as Samuel. And um, it's got bookends. Really, um, it starts with, uh, we sort of start in the middle of things with the birth of Samuel. And then David doesn't enter into the picture until in the, in the teens, like chapter 16 maybe, 15 or 16 of 1 Samuel. But the story is about his rise and a bit of his fall, okay? Which is really important to keep in mind. Now along the way, there are other smaller rises and falls. So for instance, King Saul, right? His, his story goes from the beginning of 1 Samuel to the end of, second, end of 1 Samuel. That's his story arc. And somewhere in the middle, David comes along. If I could show you the video, I wouldn't just be making arm motions like this. Um, but then uh, even in the very beginning, we've got this story arc of Eli, the priest. Who's got a, he's, he's just like a little blip, but it's a rise and a fall. And that's a, a thematic thing, something that's really important for you to keep in mind as we go through uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, but we need to set the stage a little bit, so let's do this. Um, can you, so if you grab your Bible, you have a Bible in front of you there. If you've got one of these, one of these red Bibles, 1 Samuel's on page 225. So we're, you know, just a, a two-thirds of an inch from the beginning. So not much has happened, relatively speaking, at least in terms of, you know, the whole content of the Bible. But it'd be good for us to review what has happened so far. How do we get to 1 Samuel? Okay, so think about what's come before, and let's just, just brainstorm it with me. What's happened in the Bible previous to 1 Samuel? 
creation? That's a good place to start. Good. Noah. Okay. Any, any, any other names from Genesis, for instance, that ring strong bells for you? Adam and Eve. Who else in Genesis? Who else is there? Yeah, good. Cain and Abel, Abraham, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph. Good. Genesis 50 ends with the death of Joseph. Okay? So we call, those would be the patriarchs, right? The patriarchs. Um, and there are a couple crucial moments in that story. Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham from the land of Ur and tells him, sight unseen, to go towards this promised land, right? Um, that, the promises that God gives to Abraham are the promises that are remembered throughout the story of Israel. So when um, God identifies himself, he always identifies, or often identifies himself as the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The God who, who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, he was there beforehand, but things changed, right? The world changed in character, right? This is why Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9 are important, because he destroys everything. That's a fresh start. Just Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives, eight souls in all, right? Um, but the promises are there all along. The promises come before Abraham. The promise, of course, is given to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, right? The serpent will strike his heel. Who's he? Who's he in that? Jesus. The serpent will strike his heel and he will crush your head. Um, so the promises are really important. The patriarchs bear these promises forward in the story. Now, what kind of people are the patriarchs? If you think about, like, think about them. What kind of people are they? Normal people. Very normal. In fact, just startlingly normal right? They're not, they're not very special. What make, if there is something that makes them special, what is it? God chose them. That's right. God showed them favor. That's a really important thing to keep in mind. That word favor becomes essential. Okay, I don't want to dwell on this too long, although it's, it's really kind of fun. Favor. God showed them favor and their response to God's favor, what was that? Obedience. Okay. Can you think of any other, other ways that they respond? Obedience is really important. Yeah. Maybe something more basic than obedience. Faith, right. Faith which gives birth to obedience, right? So they respond to God's favor with faith. They trust him. The, you know, the paradigmatic story there is Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac, right? Nobody can do that. Um, and yet he does it. He's the, and so Paul calls him the man of faith, all right? That takes us through Genesis. Okay, let's move, let's move faster now. What comes next? Exodus through Deuteronomy. What's that? Moses. We got Moses. Yeah. Moses and the Exodus. Now, Moses is a great character because, for a couple of reasons, he also gets sort of called out of, out of left field to do this job that he doesn't really want to do uh, that requires a tremendous amount of faith on his part. Um, but he says at one point... Um, in Deuteronomy, that there's going to be someday a prophet like him, right? There's going to be a prophet like him, but greater than he is. And so he also is carrying this promise forward, that's, that he's doing this haphazard job of leading the people. And he says he complains to God all the time. It's great. Like, um, he says, what, did I give birth to all of these people? And you want me to, you know, nurture them and take care of them? They're your people. You take care of them. And God, 
And God says, okay, cool it, Moses. You're going to do what I tell you to do. And so, you know, um, he is an exemplar for us of obedience and um, chosen by God to lead his people, offering them the law, offering them God's eternal wisdom, um, being rejected by them, having rebellion on his hands, but carrying them up to the promised land. Okay, so that gets us to, to the end of Deuteronomy. They're standing on the brink of the promised land, and then what's next? Joshua leads them into the promised land. Now, you remember before, the, the reason why they didn't go into the promised land at the end of Exodus was because um, Moses, Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. But see, So they, remember, they sent spies into the promised land to look around, and what did they see? Giants. People that you can't, you can't defeat. I mean, maybe you've seen like the old... I don't remember what it was like an arc book or arch book or something like that, where they got these guys holding these big stocks and the grapes are as big as your head, right? They were huge people and um, they were afraid. God said, go in and drive these people out. And they said, we can't do it. So then they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation was gone. Everybody except for Joshua and, do you remember who the other person was? Caleb. Caleb. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So they lead, them into the, they lead them into the promised land, and they have this single set of instructions when they go into the promised land. What are they supposed to do? Yeah. I mean, and that's really hard for us to hear. It's, uh, it's a source of, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, uh, a grating thing to hear. God say, wipe these people out. And by that, he means wipe them out. Um, but it's not unlike the flood, right? Wickedness had taken hold of the land, and what is needed in that moment is utter destruction. It's kind of like um, a forest fire, right? Sometimes things need to be raised. We are, believe me, you and I would make terrible decisions about when that should happen, right? If it were up to us, we would choose the wrong time. We would probably do it right away, and then we'd all be toast, right? God is patient and uh, steadfast in his love, and when he does things in his time, you can be confident that it's for the best, um, even if it's you know, startling to us. Yeah, Krista. But um, basically, they, uh, God uh, didn't want to get their That's right. Yeah. So there were two things that were going on, right? One was these people were worshiping other gods. They were blaspheming the name of the Lord, right? Um, they were worshiping creation as opposed to its creator. But he, God was also really interested, especially interested in preserving his people, the patriarchs, their family, Abraham's family, because it would be through Abraham's family that all the world would be saved, right? So he needed to keep them safe. And this is why he said, don't, don't mingle with these other people. Don't intermarry with them, because if you do, you're not going to be able to stay faithful to me. You're not going to listen to me. Um, and so it was, it, that was a really important thing. That's a great, that's a great thing to note, Krista. Um, how did they do at their job of driving out all of the people? Not well, right? Sometimes they did great, um, but sort of the theme of the story is they did great when they wanted to. Well, God did it. That's exactly right, yeah. 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 God did it for them. Um, he asked them to do things, right? Like, so he said, go march around the town, to, to go march around Jericho to Joshua and the people. And when they obeyed him, they had, you know, victory 
quite apart from anything they could have accomplished. It wasn't because of their military might, right? They were, they were nomads. They had been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. They're not soldiers. Um, and yet God gave them victory. They gave them victory where he promised them victory. The trouble was one, they, A, didn't want the victory, or B, didn't think that they could actually do it. So they ran into people who had chariots of iron, and they said, we they're too tough for us. We're just going to make a deal with them. How's that sound? That is the beginning of all kinds of problems when you make, when you make deals like that, where you say, God said this, but I, you know, it'd be, this is a safer option for me, <laughs> right? Um, and so they didn't do what they were given to them. I mean, that's, that's the basic problem. They didn't get do what was given to them. And so there are still some Canaanites in the land. People are, they divide up the land. This is, you've got that map in front of you, right, on the, the first page. They divide up the land. I've got to grab a copy for myself. And, thank you, they settle, um, but they haven't driven everybody out. And so it's not, it's not safe. Um, then things really start going downhill. Judges. Tell me some stories from the book of Judges. Reuben was Dan, of course, that went traipsing up north and found a people unsuspecting and um, took over their territory. Yeah. Right. It's got very gory. Yeah. And the thing is, in Judges, the refrain is, Israel had no king. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Yes. Would rather see the line that you do need some kind of political structure. Yeah. Um, those are two really important things. No king. Everyone did what was right. I'm going to write this whole thing down, okay? Hang on for a second. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay. So hold on to that thought. You're, you're right. That's thematic, um, and we've got to keep that picture in mind. So it would be very easy to take the stories of the Old Testament and just spiritualize them, right, to allegorize them. But, in fact, one of the remarkable things about God is that he works in the contingencies of human history. So the fact that the people were nomadic and they were this group of tribes that started beating each other up and not helping each other where they were supposed to and they had no political, you know, unified political structure, that was actually a source of a lot of their problems, this political fact. They didn't know how to be a people together. That was a real problem. Um, and, and partly, at least, because, mostly, altogether, actually, because they, couldn't, they wouldn't have God as their king, right? Um, and that creates these problems. They did, they did what was right in their own eyes. Hang on to that thought. What, tell me some more stories from Judges. Samson, yeah, what's, what's the deal with Samson? How's that go? Right. 
Yeah. That's, no, but that's pretty good. Synopsis. I, I, um, if, I, if you were high schoolers, I'd have you act it out. That would be what I would do right now. But the, um, a couple key elements to that story. He was chosen by God. And, and I wrote that word Nazarite. That's an important word. There's a, there's a set of vows that a person has sort of imposed on them, really. Um, no hair, no cutting your hair, no strong drink, no tr- trimming your beard. Um, and it's signs that you're set apart for a special purpose. There are other people in the Bible who similarly are given such um, obligations. When things go wrong with Delilah, what's the, what's the key fact about Delilah that is problematic? What's that? She's, she's something other than a, a, an Israelite. Yeah, you're right. I'm trying to remember, too, whether she's a Philistine or something else. She consorts with the Philistines. That's to be sure, right? But she, remember how it goes. Uh, Samson, earlier, Samson had said something like, um, I see that woman over there in the, you know, this other place, and, I want, and he says to his parents, go get her for me, right? So he has no, he's, he's just disregarding this word of God, not to, not to put in his, throw in his lot with the people who aren't God's people. And it's a dramatic downfall. The climax of the story, though, is this brilliant moment of salvation that comes at the hands of Samson, but it's after all of this, all of this carnage that is, is because of his unfaithfulness, and it ends in no dignity for him, right? He's, he's blind, he's chained up, and he, and he kills a bunch of people. That's kind of his final victory, okay? So Samson, good. Another, any other stories from Judges? Gideon, right? Yep. Gideon defeating a large army with a very small one. Yeah. Yeah. Ehud, the left-handed man. Yep. Deborah, the prophetess. Yep. And Barak, we hear about them in Hebrews 11. Um, Maybe these names aren't familiar to you. They're really obscure. And the stories are very strange, hard to sort of grasp. And that's part of the point. One of the things I want to convey to you is just what disarray is happening among the people of Israel in the book of Judges. Marilyn. prophets during the time of the Judges because God didn't really want them to have a king. Right. Israel to have a king, so were there prophets during the time of the Judges? I don't know whether we hear about it during the time of the Judges. That's a good question. Um, in First and Second Samuel, we hear, so we've got Samuel, who's a prophet. Before Samuel's even grown, there's a man of God who comes and speaks a word to Eli. And later in Samuel, we hear about basically a school of prophets. So it seems like there was some sort of an institutional thing, people who were tasked with conveying God's word. But I don't, I don't know that we necessarily hear about it in Judges. I'd like to look it up and be sure. Um, were not the Judges? They, I, I don't think they had the same role as a prophet. They were, they were, so they were saviors. That's right. And the, but, and the interesting thing, of course, about the prophets in their leadership is it was always like when things are in crisis mode, okay, now we're going to call we're going to call a judge up to to take care of things, or God is going to call. And, and which is not you know, if they if they hear the word of the Lord and heed it, because of course they've got, um, God's law. They have His commands, they have His word, um, and they're not heeding it. Um, so things are just in massive disarray. Okay. If you turn the previous page to the end of Judges page 221 in the small print version of the Bible, just the page before, sorry, I'm sorry, before Ruth, just before Ruth, the last verse of the book, 
right? We've heard this refrain over and over again in Judges. These are the last words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, that's, that's about the worst thing you can say about people. Everybody just does whatever they want. That's terrible. Um, and that's the setting that we find First Samuel. That's the setting in which we find First Samuel. Um, so you can see what kind of need there is, like politically, socially, um, in terms of their, their faithfulness to God. But, but there's really actually something much more fundamental that's, a, that's problematic about their disarray. Okay, so if, things, so if the people of Israel just sort of disintegrate, if they um, abandon God's promises, if they, if they become not a people, what's lost is not just their nation, but God's promises. Okay? God's promises are attached to this people, to Abraham's offspring. And so it's much more at stake, there's much more at stake than just the survival of the nation of Israel. And that's sort, of, that's sort of resonating in the background. So when we hear things like, they did what was right in their own eyes, or they, the word of the Lord, there was no frequent occurrence of the word of the Lord, or they didn't listen to the word of the Lord, or the priests were corrupt. When we hear that, what's at stake is not just that present moment, but the very survival of God's promise. Yeah, Marilyn. Where was the tavern? In Shiloh. In Shiloh. Yeah, so take a look at the map for just a second there. I know it's really small. This is, it comes from a... Big book, and I made it smaller, just to make it harder to look at. Ephraim, that's a really important spot right there. Ephraim, it's kind of right smack dab in the middle, just a little bit to the left of the Jordan River. It's purple. Um, Ephraim, that's where the book of Samuel is going to begin. But you can see Shiloh up in the top right, the northeast part of Ephraim. And you see it's not far from Jerusalem, um, at least in terms of this map. Um, Just a little bit further north, you see Mount Gerizim. That little mountain, the, that's really hard to see. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but that's where the Samaritans uh, eventually made their worship place. Mount Gerizim. Okay. So this was in, so they were worshiping in Shiloh at the time. And there was a priest stationed in Shiloh. And priest, a priest from the line of Aaron, right? Um, carrying out the sacrifices. Okay, everybody good so far? The, just to fill in the story here, Ruth, the book of Ruth is in some ways parallel, a parallel story, at least to the beginning of First Samuel. Can you tell me the story of Ruth real quickly? Well, how does that go? Uh, Naomi was, uh, went, went with her husband to, what, I don't know what country, but somewhere out of the way, out of Israel, because of a famine, and then the sons, and the husband died, and the sons died, and she didn't have anybody, so Ruth, her daughter-in-law, Boaz, a great name for a kid, by the way. Go, I think, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it's it, she shows up. Ruth shows up. She's a she's a Moabite, right? Moabitess. Yeah. And she shows up in the genealogy in Matthew chapter one, the lineage of Jesus. There she is, as the great great grandmother of David. Is that right? Yeah, great-great-grandmother of David. Um, and what she had done was she had um, clung to God's promises. So there was nobody to redeem her or Naomi. They were, they were, you know, 
She had no connection. Um, Naomi could have, she, she could have just been completely disconnected from God's people at that point. As soon as her husband dies, she could have been cut off. Um, but she clung to God's promises, and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, is her savior, right? Uh, this picture of Christ and the church, um, the church who clings in faith to Jesus. That, that story is parallel, especially to the story of Hannah, which we get in 1 Samuel chapter 1, okay? So we're going to dive into that right now, and you'll see the parallels right away. Um, but do you have any questions before we do that? Okay, so there's going to, I think that this class is going to consist of a lot of listening, okay? These stories, you've got to just hear them, and um, we'll talk about it. We'll just listen, and we'll just, I'll, I'll read, and uh, then we'll talk about it. Sound good? You on board? Okay. First Samuel. Pay attention, of course, to like things that that are surprising to you, things that don't make sense, and ask ask about them. Okay, that's that's where we'll get some, we'll make some real hay in terms of uh, de- deciphering the story. Okay, there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. I'm going to pause right there. Maybe, maybe I won't read a long chunk at all at once. Let's just pause there for a second. What, how does that sound to you so far? What are your, reaction, your impressions of the story so far? It makes you think of Jacob's wives. Okay. Yeah. Leah and, Ra- and Rachel. Yeah, Leah and Rachel, right? Um, yeah, and they were, they were in competition, this, uh, you know, this, and, and um, we find out later, of course, that this is a real sore spot between the two of them. Sarah, yeah, think, tell me who else in the Bible cannot have children. Sarah? Samson's mother, that's right. Yep. Rebecca? Yeah, Rebecca. This is just a little, a little blip. We, we don't usually miss it, but Isaac, Rebecca couldn't have, have babies. Isaac prayed to the Lord, and he opened her womb, right? Who else? Elizabeth. That's right. Mary. Right? Can't have babies if you're, you know, if you're a virgin, right? Um, so there's this, this really important strain going on that has to do with the fulfillment of God's promises. Because how is God going to... The, what's the original promise to um, Adam and Eve? That, the, that your seed, right? your seed, your offspring. And it, for, for Abraham, it is through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So again, just like the disarray of the people of Israel, barrenness is risky to God's promise, right? It makes it seem like God's promise is not going to be fulfilled. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's sort of aside from all of the other things that go along with it, right? Like the, 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 personal, um, the personal suffering that goes along with it. And the societal implications. I mean, Panina is just, she's just going to ridicule Hannah for having no children. Um, and Hannah feels like she's been deprived by the Lord. In fact, we're going to find out that, she, that it is the Lord who deprives her. But this contrast is even more amplified because Ephraim, the place where they're living, um, is this lush, rich land. And we just heard about Elkanah's family tree, this fertile family, right? This long list and then... Hannah had no children, okay? The contrast is set for us, all right? So here's, here's what goes next. Oh, another important thing. Um, Hannah, the Hebrew word Hannah, means favored one, 
favored one. That's where favor comes in. Um, in Greek, it's charin, which is what the angel says to Mary, right? And this is not just to Mary, but this is, throughout, this is throughout the Bible. You know that everything is going to be okay when God shows you favor. But what's the problem for Hannah? She's the favored one, but it does not appear to be the case, right? All the evidence is to the opposite. She's got the name, but her life does not show it. So that, I mean, this contrast is just really stark at the beginning. Um, the expectation of God's promises and their apparent, you know, unfulfillment. Okay. Verse 3. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went by, went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay, give me your reactions now. Well, Leah had ten sons, didn't she? That, yeah, uh, no, she didn't, right? Because there were maid, there were maidservants involved, right? So, you know, they, te- they belonged to her technically because it was her servant, but... Um, yeah. Uh, so, what, so tell me how you, what, so what do you think about Elkanah? What kind of a guy is he? But he loved her. He loved her still, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he wondered, like, did he also love Panina? Panina. That's an interesting question. Did, did he have Panina just because she, he needed children? Kind of like how Abraham takes Hagar. Um, his Sarah's maidservant. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, at least, so there's two things there. At least in terms of like modern romantic notions of love, yeah. That doesn't enter the picture until, I don't know, the 1800s, yeah, right. Um, marriage is a very practical thing. It gets you children. Um, it establishes your name, your family, right? So those are, yeah, you're right. And so it is exceptional, just like it's exceptional in Song of Songs to hear such profound, self-giving language about love. And that's um, what's remarkable about the way Elkanah talks. He loves her in spite of the fact that the thing that would be most useful to a husband about, about his wife in this context, she's not doing for him, right? It's almost like um, God is loving her Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. God is loving her through him. That's really wonderful um, and true, doubtless, doubtlessly true. Um, and so he shows her this lavishness of God's love, giving her a double portion, right? And saying these words to her. I used to think that... Uh, he sh- probably shouldn't have said, am I not more to you than ten sons? It seemed like an, uh, not a good thing to say. But 
as I've thought about it more recently, and I think that, is pro- I think that it actually is. Um, it, it, he's not saying sons aren't any good, but he's saying my love transcends that, transcends this, you know, this benefit that you could give me. And isn't that not, is that not worth something? Is that not good for you? Um, so, you know, he's really a, it's a, a striking example. He goes away now. We're not going to see him <laughs> much more. Um, but, she, but he is how God is loving Hannah. That's a great way to put it, Leah. Thanks for that. Um, any other questions, comments? I'm not going to make any promises about how much we're going to get through at any point. So we're just going to do it. This is, this is really fun for me. I appreciate you indulging me in this. This is really fun. We'll just go, and I'm not going to... I, ha- I thought maybe we'd get through three chapters, which is just not going to happen. So, Verse 9. Because otherwise we're never going to get through the two books, ever. But After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So you've got that woodcut on the second page there of your handout, which shows, shows the scene. That's right. So she's vowing on behalf of Samuel, he's going to be dedicated to the Lord, no razor shall touch his head. He's going to be set apart for service to God. So now think about that for a minute. Uh, she wants a son. But what does she want a son for? For the Lord. You think to yourself, I want to have a kid and then I'm going to, sh- you know, when he, as soon as I wean him, we're going to send him off. <laughs> it's going to be great. That's not, what, that's not how we usually would think about it, right? Um, it's, and that's the way this, this goes in the story. As soon as he is weaned, she gives him to Eli. Yeah, now doesn't that mean, though, that they had to be Levites? How could, he become a, how could Samuel become a priest? He wasn't either. Samuel, he doesn't become a priest. He serves in the temple. Yeah, but later he's under uh, Paul, under Saul. He's the high he, he, priest. Yeah, that's right. That's a good question. Um, I wonder if it's related to, we're going to find out that God says to Eli, I'm going to bring an end to your house, your house of priesthood. And it may be related to that, that he's introducing, God's introducing something new. Could they have the Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, there's also this, there's also this overlap between those offices. So Samuel is principally a prophet, which has nothing to do with your lineage. Um, but then he is also given the responsibility to offer, say, offer sacrifices now and again. Um, but that's given to him by God, right? Not by, not by birthright, but by, by, God's, by, by God's command. But let me, let me look into that a little bit more. Um, her prayer is so, is so important. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. That is, I mean, that is, um, that's a good way to start any prayer, right? Remember me and not forget. Remember me and not forget your servant. Um, she, she, this is all she's got left. She's weeping bitterly. Okay. Um, besides Samuel, and we had Samson. Do you, can you think of another Nazarite, another person who's sworn off, cutting their hair, and 
drinking strong drink in the Bible? John the Baptist, that's right. Yeah. Um, so there's this, there's this sense of uh, this special class of people who have the responsibility for preparing the way of the Lord. Okay? John the Baptist is preparing for Jesus. Samuel's uh, tilling the ground for the coming of David eventually. All right? Verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So Eli, this is a striking thing, right? It's as though Eli has never seen somebody praying before. This is how bad things are in, in Shiloh. It's as though he doesn't, I mean, it's like, what is, what is she doing? She must be drunk. Um, she's not drunk. I've drunk no strong wine or no, 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 drink, no wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out, right? That's not what I've taken in, but it's what I'm pouring out that is leading me to behave this way. But how does this little snippet here end? How does this paragraph end? How does she leave? Happy. Why is she happy? Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a remarkable thing that that confidence is encouraged, strengthened through, by the hands of Eli, who is like, you know, who knows what, how he's doing. We find out later what kind of a job he's doing. Not a great job. But he says to her, he gives her this blessing. And she says, that basically says, that is enough for me, right? To have your blessing. Um, now, we've got this, now we've got this sort of fellowship of prayer and petition. And that is enough for her, right? Knowing that God has heard her prayer. And he will give her what is good. Hannah is just an ex- a wonderful example for us. I mean, um, this is a great way to start the story, to start the book of Samuel, is with this shining light among the people, among the people of Israel who are doing everything that's right in their own eyes. Here she is, being faithful. And we're going to get a glimpse. We're not going to get to it today. I'm going to just tell you by way of preview that when she prays her prayer in chapter 2, which is parallel to Mary's Magnificat, she understands that when God answers her prayer about this thing, having a, a child, God is not just dealing with her, but this is part of a much bigger story. So when God hears and answers your prayers, it's not just about you. That's what, it is about you. That's really important. But God deals with you the way that he does because he's interested in dealing with humanity, in saving humanity. So when, when Hannah says, you know, rejoices because God has answered her prayer. She says such startling things as he's, you know, he's raised up the lowly and he's given wealth to the poor and he's brought down the rich from their, from their lofty seats because she understands the salvation given to her in this moment as a sign of God's plan of salvation that he's going to carry out. That's such a, another, I mean, that's a really commendable thing and something that we should take, we should take um, in earnest is that when God answers your prayers, which he does, whether in the affirmative or the negative, when God answers your prayers, 
it's not like you're ha- it's not just like this private conversation where you you know you call up your friend and you just want him to deal with this one thing. You're tapping into this big thing that God is doing, right? And you're you're asking him to do what he's promised to do for people, for you as well, right? To 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 sweep up your circumstances into this grand salvation that he's carrying out for the world. And you don't know, just like Hannah didn't know what was going to happen, what kind, of a, what kind of a man Samuel would be, what kind of work he would do, that he would anoint David to be the king. Um, she didn't know that. Neither do you know when God answers your, your prayers what he's going to do with them. And it's, but rest assured, it's going to be much bigger than you could have imagined. The goodness that he's going to accomplish is um, beyond the horizon of what you can see. That's pretty cool. Um, and that's the, her example to us is just a tremendous gift. Let's see, verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So Samuel, this is kind of unclear just exactly what the root of that is, but it has to do with hearing or answering a, answering a prayer, right? So the Lord, the Lord has heard. That's, that's how I would translate it. Samuel means the Lord has heard. The Lord has remembered, okay? Let me just, let's just finish up chapter one and then we're gonna wrap things up. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So that's different than saying, do, it, do whatever's right in your own eyes. That's saying, you've got some room to do what seems best for you, but make sure that this happens, that the word of the Lord is established, that God's word prevails. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Any questions, comment, reactions? Carol. Why Good question. Because it's interesting because often we think that the I know, yeah. You know, your own children, that the Lord gives you the children, he lets you the children right. for the life that they're ultimately his. Yeah, yeah. That's, in, that's, a, that's a good observation. Um, as long as he lives, I've lent him to the Lord. Might have to look up that word and see just what it means. Yeah, Kathy. The NIV says give. It does give, okay. Right. So maybe it's ambiguous. The word may be ambiguous. That happens, so, you know, Hebrew. In English, we often express things through variety, right? So we use lots of different words to say the same thing. In Hebrew, it's the opposite. They use the same word to say lots of different things, which means that the poetic devices in Hebrew are very different than in English. So they, they, they you know, it's like plays on words are happening all over the place in Hebrew because there are fewer words and you can get multiple meanings out of a word. Um, that makes it often really difficult for us to translate. Um, but the, the thrust of it is she understands that she's been given this gift 
and she's not holding it back for herself. She's returning at least some portion of it to the Lord. Yeah, um, and and her her limit for it is till the end of his life, God can have him. Right. But I think it's wonderful that she um, what she promised that she kept. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Because you know, she was looking for this child her whole life. Yeah. That becomes important later. So she swore a vow. She swore an oath. She made a vow before the Lord, which is a risky thing to do because if you don't keep it, you're lying to God. This is, this is one of Saul's problems later. He swears an oath rashly, not thinking. He does it just sort of on the spur of a moment and suffers tremendously for it. She swears an oath and she keeps her promise. She keeps her promise. Didn't one of the judges do that? Yeah, Jephthah. He said, after, this is, this is a, a dicey story <laughs> at best. He says, if we, if we win the battle, something like that, if we win the battle, whatever, whatever comes out of my house first, I will offer to the Lord as a sacrifice, thinking that some critter is going to come out of his house. But it's his daughter who comes out of the house. Um, it's unclear what happens next in the story, um, but that was a bad idea, swearing that vow. Aaron. Maybe it's just different at that time, but I feel like in our days, like, Right. So I guess the other night I was even wondering out with Hannah in the first place, how do you not read that as like the same as God, if you give me a shiny red bicycle, I promise I'll share it with my brother. You know, or like it, I mean is it Yeah, what's really the difference there? Yeah. It might it might be going back to the reason why she wants a son is not for her own sake, but for the Lord's sake, right? So, um, you know, the reason why you want a shiny red bicycle is because you want a shiny red bicycle and you're going to concede this one little thing. I'm going to let my brother use it every now and again, right? She's, she's, she wants a son for the Lord. So she, that's, what, that's really what her petition amounts to is, give me a son for your sake, not for my sake. Yeah? I think that that's a difference there. Why do you want him in the Yeah, absolutely. Like, I feel like I would be that good where I genuinely would be like, I really want this so I can do it. I, like, in my mind, I'm like, I would just be bargaining. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's probably, that's probably a, a fair observation to make. I mean, Hannah is more faithful than I am, to be sure. Her name is favored by the Lord. Yeah. And she's, she's visibly not. Right. So that's another way that it is for God's sake, right? Show your favor. There's a lie here. Yeah. Inherent lies. It's yeah. It's favored by God. It's inherent in her name. In her name. Okay, yeah. so, but she's favored by her husband. That's true. Yep. Yep. But he can't, he can't make a son for her, right? Tina. Do the priests just accept children? <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to get rid of some? <laughs> we don't do this anymore. No. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is bizarre, isn't it? Right? <laughs> I, you know, who, I, I would love to, I would love to like peek into this world and see what it, what it actually looked like. I mean, okay, so do, you, do the priests just accept your children? And 
Eli doesn't seem like a great supervisor of children, right? I'm just like, that guy, uh, he's probably going to just let the kid do whatever he wants. But, so, yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> a good question. Now that's that's so I, that would that's a good suspicion. We do hear later though. She her only interaction with him is annually when she goes to the to the tabernacle. She brings him a little robe every year. Really important. Eli's wife was a good. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? That's right. Yeah. But I mean, this is all. These are all really good observations because it gets back to Krista's point about how these are normal people. Maybe was it you, Krista, who said that these are normal people? Do, and by normal, we mean really messed up. You know, like they can't, they just, uh, they do strange things and stuff doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, Leah. I think they mean Samuel. Because they make a point of saying he was really young. Yeah. And then the next one goes on and says, and he had a parade, like kind of continuation of the story. So it's not like a, and for the next three years, I don't know, it's just kind of. Yeah, the, the timeline gets a little wonky when, when you get, a, especially like a canticle, a song like this shows up. Um, I, the reason why I think it's Samuel that worships the Lord there is because we're going to hear in, again and again, especially in contrast with Eli's son, sons, how Samuel is doing the things that befit a priestly son, and they're not. So he worships the Lord. They do awful things in chapter 3. Um, he ministers to the Lord, and it's, it's actually this back, sort of this back and forth. He worshiped the Lord. They were stealing sacrifices. He ministered to the Lord. They were sleeping with the ladies around the temple. You know, he, he, worshiped the, he, wor- he ministered to the Lord. They wouldn't listen to their father. That, that's the contrast that's being set up. Yeah, good. Okay, yeah, Kathy. I think there are servants in the temple, too. It's not like... It's- yeah. <laughs> Samuel and the... Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Important historical reference point there, yes. (laughs) Okay, we should go. Let's pray and then come back next week for more. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much. Come back again.